states are no longer the solution to this. Uh, the only way that we can uh, uh, move forward is through some collective action. Okay, there is these political disputes going on, of course there are, but nonetheless, you know, we can work together, we can come up with shared solutions. And there were around 200 teenagers there, and I was absolutely astonished by the sense of optimism and energy that these people had. Here at Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives, paradigms, knowledge constructs, and vision that broaden our worldview. Today, we are going to focus on climate security and the humanitarian development peacebuilding nexus. I am sure you will agree a much needed and important discussion to have. I am really honored to have a distinguished um, panel, um, Professor Andrew Moran, who is Professor of Politics and International Relations and University Teaching Fellow with the London Metropolitan University. He's joined by Dr. Shaheen Malik, who is the course leader of the Master in Arts in Climate Security and Humanitarian Development and Peacebuilding. And um, also Dr. Bruce Fulbean, who is a senior lecturer in politics and international relations um, all three of them with the London Metropolitan University. We're extremely happy for the Worldview community to connect and to hear us having this very important discussion because change is the most significant challenge facing the global community today and climate change is one of those. The problems generated by climate change will have a profound impact on our world not least our political, economic, philosophical, ethical, or social justice systems. Our worldview panel discussion is facilitous. We will be focusing on exploring and reflecting on the global issues surrounding climate change to review principles and practices that focuses on the humanitarian development peace nexus and the implications of the associated climate risks. But more importantly, our discussion will also focus on both the professional and the practitioner approaches in terms of exploring possible actions for delivering a more holistic, sustainable vision of community-based humanitarian development and peace-building solutions to pressing issues and impacts we currently face as a direct result of climate change, while at the same time contribute and to commit to leave no one behind. Professor Andrew Moran, if we can please start with you and, and to get the conversation going, could you please contextualize for us what is meant by climate security? Well, thank you so much for having me here, John Hans. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think we can agree that climate change is happening and it's gathering pace and the international community is understandably increasingly concerned about this. I think one of the things that's happened very recently, particularly coming out of the work of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and also work done around the world by, interestingly enough, defence analysts and security analysts, is that we can see that 
climate change now is impacting in, in, in so many ways that are interconnected that really get to the heart of the security of you and me as individuals, energy security, food security, political security, economic security. We can see that playing out right now, if you look at events that are happening in Europe where Rivers are drying up. So in Germany, for example, it's become much more difficult to move goods along the Rhine. If we think about the Yangtze River in China, where they're talking about difficulties in generating energy because the water supplies are not available for nuclear power plants, for hydroelectric power systems, where we see crop failures happening because of rising temperatures. What we can see is there is this very much this interconnected series of events being driven by climate change, which are now making us much, much more aware of the security implications around this. In the past, it used to be military, um, the defense industries, for example, and ministries of defense that were concerned about the security implications of climate change because of access to, re to resources, valuable resources that we all need. But actually now this is something that affects every single person on the planet. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, if I could just add to uh, some of the um, areas specifically to Europe that uh, Professor Moran mentioned, um, climate security in Europe has indeed uh, become the foremost global warning um, multifaceted risk in Europe. Let me just give you some statistics. The European Union's own research estimates that um, Europe could be facing three degrees of warming over the pre-industrial average temperature set by the end of the century, unless there are ambitious restrictions in the global um, reduction of greenhouse gases. But under these conditions, um, you will agree, Europe definitely feels a different place. One in two Europeans will suffer from water scarcity. The continent would face a 15-fold increase in economic damage to infrastructure, and the area of cropland affected by drought would increase sevenfold. In some areas, agricultural yields could decline by as much as 20%. The increase in temperatures could mean 132,000 additional deaths every year from extreme heat. And this is based on research by um, Bergamaschi and Berlanger published in 2020. Um, and if I may loop um, now to um, Dr. Bruce. Ah, oh, hello, yes, <laughs> very pleased to be here. Um, if we, so based on the um, element of climate security and the impact that may or may not have um, on peace building. How do you see the connection between climate security and the peace building within um, different parts of the world where the climate security agenda um, is definitely you know, increasing and becoming a priority? Okay, thank you very much. Um, well, I think, first of all, it's worth just introducing briefly what we mean by peace building. So peace building really is about trying to create peace for the long term. OK, so it's about trying to create <clears throat> durable, sustainable peace, not just peace in the immediate sense, but peace that actually can last 
over many years, many decades. So as a consequence of that, therefore, to understand that, that, that goal of building long-term long peace, we therefore need to look at what are the real deep-rooted causes of conflict, not just the superficial ones, but the kind of underlying ones. And I think that's where climate change very much comes in, that climate change sometimes is, sometimes isn't a direct cause of conflict, but what I think we tend to find is, is that it's kind of a risk multiplier. So where we have situations of vulnerability, where we have situations of fragility already, climate change tends to exacerbate those problems. So when we look at conflicts, for example, in the developing world, poverty, underdevelopment, drought, famine, these are all these kind of causes that, that lie behind so many conflicts. And when you bring climate change into the mix, then that just kind of exacerbates those problems and makes them even worse. Where I think particularly we notice the, the kind of ramifications for Europe are, are probably slightly different, in fact. I think on the one hand, what we see is some of the implications, some of the kind of knock-on effects of those conflicts in other parts of the world also being felt in Europe. And I think the big way we feel that probably is through refugees. And we've seen that in recent times, the kind of fallout from conflicts in places like Syria, Yemen, and so on, has been these kind of waves of immigrants, uh, waves of refugees you know, coming into Europe uh, uh, and then having to deal with all the attendant problems that that may cause. So I think what we find is that different parts of the world experience these problems perhaps slightly differently, but they all end up being kind of joined up. So in terms of actually kind of finding solutions, therefore, it's, you know, it's a mixture. On the one hand, if we want to increase security for Europe, it is partly about increasing and addressing climate security issues elsewhere. If you don't want to have to deal with the fallout of these conflicts in other parts of the world, it is about dealing with them. But also, of course, within Europe itself, there are particular factors. I think at the present time, you know, most notably, would be the present kind of energy crisis, you know, that is directly related to the uh, uh, dependency that we have upon fossil fuels and how that makes you know, even very developed economies, even very developed societies, you know, very, very vulnerable to volatile price changes in oil and natural gas prices. So actually we do see some of those same issues arising of you know, increasing poverty, increasing uh, uh, stresses and strains upon communities that are also likely therefore to generate conflicts, you know, even in developed European societies. So these things absolutely do all link together. And, um, uh, uh, you know, climate change is definitely one of the factors that, uh, 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 you know, exacerbates the potential for conflict. Thank you very much. And just before I, I um, bring um, Dr. Malik into the discussion, um, Bruce, can I ask you to clarify for us, um, because when we talk about peace building, we very often hear um, in the narrative positive peace and negative peace. Could you clarify for us what does that mean within the context of peace building? Yeah, absolutely. This very much relates to this idea of kind of short term and long term peace. So the idea of negative peace refers to, I think, probably what many people would automatically think of as the meaning of peace. That is, it is the absence of kind of direct uh, kind of manifest violence. So, you know, if, if a war is not directly taking place, we think of that as a negative peace. But what I think academics and, and the kind of research in this area tells us is that that's, that's a very limited way of thinking about peace, that if all you are looking for is the absence of violence, that doesn't therefore touch on all the other issues 
that can contribute to kind of conflicts and tensions within societies. So, for example, there may not be a war going on you know, in much of uh, Europe, certainly Western Europe, that's the case. That doesn't mean there aren't drives of conflict. There are political tensions, there are economic tensions, there is social, uh, racial, religious injustices going on. And that's therefore what we start to address when we think about positive peace. So positive peace is that kind of fuller idea of peace where you're not just addressing you know, the direct forms of violence, but more of the kind of underlying and kind of structural factors that contribute to conflicts. And it's when you address those, you try to address those, is when you work towards this kind of longer term, more developed idea of positive peace. So it's a harder, in a way, in many ways, it's a harder task to address. But if you really want to address the underlying root causes of conflicts, then these are the ones you need to think about. And obviously, in the environment and climate change comes in there as one of those deeper root causes, if you are looking for positive peace. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Shan Malik, if we could ask you please to take the discussion forward now in terms of, um, we've heard about all these important steps, the actors, um, in terms of the peace building blocks. Um, how would you, um, or what is the advice you would um, share with us in terms of all these concerns, areas, risks, dealing with climate security, how do we then deliver effective peace building processes where the local community has full ownership of it and they don't become a tradable commodity in terms of um, how the international community very often deliver these um, different programs and development initiatives? Uh, thank you, John Hans, uh, and I'm very pleased to be here. Um, I, I think what I'd like to do is to highlight the intrinsically transnational nature of um, climate security and climate problems. Um, we, we only have to look at uh, a week's worth of headlines um, uh, to see that climate security is now impacting upon uh, countries around the world. Um, just over the last few days, I've read headlines about the lessons or rather lack of lessons learned um, in the United States as a result of Hurricane, uh, Hurricane Harvey and the flood damage that was caused by that. Um, half of China is uh, under severe drought where its largest river, River uh, Poyang Lake, I think it is, a freshwater river is so dry that um, that um, uh, uh, they have to dig late at night because of the intense heat in order to to get to the lowered water table. Um, cl climate change is pushing the possibility of um, up to three billion dollars worth of annual damage done in the western United States alone. Um, in Pakistan, where my sister lives, um, a, a thousand people have just been killed as a result of um, uh, flooding. Pakistan has experienced 300% more monsoon rains this time around than over the last few, uh, few, few years. Um, and th these sorts of uh, uh, problems are, are clearly uh, transnational. 
we are experiencing them globally. And uh, uh, and, and with the uh, uh, summer that we've had in Europe, um, that, that brings home to us in the richer part of the world that we are not immune uh, to, to these problems. Um, I, I, I live in Bromley in Kent, uh, and uh, it's only today that we have experienced some rainfall. Uh, we haven't had rainfall for two and a half months, and, and that, frankly, is, is unheard of. <laughs> um, uh, France, large swathes of France are, de are devastated. Um, Spain has been experiencing um, wildfires. Um, this is now an, uh, an annual occurrence. So, so this intrinsically transnational nature um, of, of climate security means, for, for, for me, means that we need to stop thinking in terms of the traditional state-centric uh, 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 view, Westphalian temple that we've been so used to um, over the, um, uh, over the uh, uh, duration of the, uh, of the Cold War, for example. The post-Cold War period has brought us um, to a much uh, uh, more collective environment, a, much, uh, a, 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 a global environment in which the borders are no longer um, so uh, rigidly defined. Um, and, and, and climate security is one area which provides us with a way to recognize that we are in this together and that there is a, 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 a serious need for us to adopt a collective approach. So it isn't just uh, any longer about uh, the uh, 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 climate security affecting um, uh, uh, those in the developing world. And, and uh, my colleague Bruce uh, has just given us uh, some very good examples of uh, the, uh, uh, the way in which climate uh, problems exacerbate underlying uh, conditions, um, whether it's poverty or racial differences or ethnic differences. Um, but, but we will, I think, in, in, in going forward, begin to experience those in Europe as well. And, and this summer should be a wake up call to, to, to not just Europe, but to the West, that we do share uh, a major uh, uh, problem with regards to uh, climate security, and we share those problems with the rest of the world. And, and the only way in which we are going to be able to uh, get, get on top of this world, uh, th this problem is to, is to recognize that and start thinking about collective solutions um, and, and, and not just reinforcing those inside and outside spaces known as states. States are no longer the solution to this. Uh, the only way that we can uh, uh, move forward is through some collective action. Thank you very much for that. And you, you really um, very nicely opened um, the, the next question that I would like to ask you. And that is um, how so much of these natural resources, let's take the simple example of fresh water supply, has become a, a commercial tradable commodity that some of the big um, 
uh, they'll remain nameless, um, actually um, sign agreements with certain governments um, to have the right to exploit um, these natural water supplies. Um, and the local community do not have access to this water. And if they want, they have to purchase bottled water. And yet the, um, the president of this very organization then um, goes on an international speaking tour and to say that access to um, drinking water becomes a fundamental human right, a human right that is articulated by commercial interest. Can I just ask you, um, you know, what is your opinion on that when um, natural resources that should be um, where communities should have access to it um, all of a sudden becomes a tradable commodity? I, 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 uh, th thank you, John. And I, I think that would be one of the uh, worst developments. The United Nations itself has recognized the human right to water, but not just water, but also to sanitation. Um, and it is acknowledged that clean drinking water uh, and sanitation are essential to the realization of all human rights. Um, there need to be um, uh, uh, some commodities um, within the human condition that uh, need to stay away from uh, this uh, uh, th this drive to towards commercialization and 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 clearly water is one of them, uh, but but that doesn't uh, uh, answer the the question of how um, we can uh, 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 access water. Uh, it, it obviously is going to uh, uh, need to be commercialized to a certain extent, but whether we rely on governments to subsidize, whether we rely on NGOs to step in whether we rely on uh, uh, the uh, uh, international community to, uh, through uh, organizations like the United Nations to uh, decommercialize or at least provide a way in which we can have access to this, what is effectively a human right? And it should be a human right. In the same way as uh, uh, access to food has been debated as a human right with the, the, with the variety of approaches uh, from the mid 1970s onwards about um, uh, 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 dealing with food as a human right. I think water needs to be included within that category. Um, absolutely. But, and I think um, the, the way in which we, can uh, uh, deal with this is to develop a collective response. Uh, we need to draw on the skills that are uh, uh, apparent and, and available in the NGO uh, network, but also in organizations like the UN system, but also not ignoring the state system that we are also used to, because we can't discount the power of the state even today. Thank you very much. And I would like to um, loop back to, to Bruce. Um, and uh, Bruce, within the peace building, peacekeeping, peacemaking nexus, and the, the increasing lack of 
confidence in elected governance that we see. The election results um, show us the evidence of a, and specifically the younger generation that just don't feel that their interests um, and values are necessarily represented. How do you think educational institutions can, can guide, can facilitate um, uh, reflections on these very important questions? Okay, uh, maybe I'll come at that at a slightly different angle and, and possibly answer some of your previous questions as well. I think what we're coming up against in many ways are the limitations of traditional approaches to peace building. So traditionally, peace building has very much been kind of a top-down uh, kind of process led by governments, led by, by international organizations, and, and also to an extent, uh, you know, multinational corporations. And, you know, one of the big problems with that has always been that therefore it's, it's been about, you know, those at the top kind of dictating terms to those at the bottom. It's been about, you know, outside actors coming into countries and, you know, with their plans or with their schemes, however good they may be, but, you know, to some extent riding roughshod over local concerns, you know, local priorities, lo local values even. One of the most interesting developments really within peace building thinking in recent times has been to try to argue for the opposite of this. Peace building from below, grassroots peace building and so on. And that can be a really fruitful way of, I think, addressing a lot of these problems. I mean, to go back to the water issue, for example, a really good example of a project, a kind of a grassroots led project um, took place um, I think a few years ago now, in the kind of earlier part of this century, known as the uh, 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 Good Water Neighbor Project in Israel between Israeli, Palestinian and Jordanian communities. So what they did was you know, bypass all the conflict, all the issues going on at the elite level. You, know, you can't reach agreements and so on and so forth. Instead, what they did was is they got communities to partner with each other across the divide. So Israeli Palestinian, Jordanian communities to kind of uh, uh, to self-manage their water supplies. You know, water being one of the big issues undoubtedly in the Middle East, uh, and particularly in that in, in, in relation to that kind of conflict area. And that was a great way, therefore, of kind of getting away from all of these elite level problems and getting local people, empowering local people, manage their own resources, find their own solutions to these problems. And one of the great useful kind of almost knock on benefits of this is that in turn, you know, helps with the underlying conflict, actually helps build relationships, you know, shows people, look, you know, we're not necessarily as different as we might have thought we were between different peoples. OK, there is these political disputes going on. Of course there are. But nonetheless, you know, we can work together. We can come up with shared solutions. So I think that's an important point about a lot of these issues as well, actually, that Anyway, it's, it's very easy, I think, to talk about climate change and so on and, and focus on the negatives and, and see it all as doom and gloom. But actually the potential for finding kind of positive answers, you know, even beyond the environmental issue of actually building relationships between communities that, that help with wider conflict is, I think, the great potential of this. So I think projects like this really are the answer. You know, absolutely, I think, in terms of infusing younger people, in terms of you know, marginalised communities, really, that felt that they aren't really being listened to in the kind of top-down activities that might be taking place. These kind of grassroots, you know, some spontaneous, you know, some absolutely you know, might require support, financial assistance, whether from the UN or the EU or wherever. But as long as people themselves are front and centre, setting their priorities, 
finding their own solutions. I think that's the great way forward to getting people passionate, energized, involved. Um, thank you so much. And, and this opens another question, which, which I'm going to ask um, um, Andrew, if, if I may um, ask you to take that one. And it's so essentially what um, when we look at the the institutions of the state and the the rule of law system, but we've been blind to the power and the influence of um, the law of culture and how powerful that can be in terms of community elders and tradition and culture, rather than the liberal um, notion of state. Um, could you share with us um, how you, in terms of so many of the um, research activities and some of your um, programs at the London Metropolitan University, where you look at the correlation of um, the complementarity between um, traditional knowledge and culture and culture of law, if you want, and the rule of law, and how you, you can use the two to be mutually beneficial. I, I want, if, if you don't mind, just to pick up on something Bruce said and say something optimistic, which is, <laughs> which is a, a, an anecdote, which is I, I have three, three children and they're very committed to campaigning on the environment and, and very progressive and, and why wouldn't they be there in an academics house? But um, I took my, uh, my middle child to see Greta Thunberg speak in London just before Greta Thunberg became the, quite rightly, the the international phenomenon that, that, that she is. And I remember sitting in, in a room, the, it was a Quaker house in London, and there were around 200 teenagers there. And I was absolutely astonished by the sense of optimism and energy that these people had. And the thing that I really came away with from that was not just their energy and desire to make a real difference, but actually how they were all interlinked with networks across the world, where in many countries around the world, there are young people campaigning at the local level, as Bruce has suggested, on climate change issues, on a whole variety of issues, which, which leaves me as an old man very optimistic for the future in that, in that sense. But thinking about the question that you've asked, I often come back in my head to this phrase that politicians often use about responsible stakeholders. We live in a world now where I think that that optimism we had around liberal globalization is rapidly diminishing, where we thought China would rise as a responsible stakeholder within the Western international system. We thought Russia could maybe be accommodated within that. And of course, that, that now is being questioned and quite substantially questioned and undermined. And I think, I think part of that goes back when we think about how do we tackle this vast problem of climate change, I agree with Shaheen that we need to rethink the relationships that states have. We need to rethink these institutions that exist. I think we need to actually rethink the economic models that we, we have in existence around the world that, that the West in particular, I don't think can carry on in the way that its economic models have, have developed in the last 50 years and are still moving forwards. Um, so when we think about that clash between the cultural and the institutional, if you are meaning how do we get around those kind of local issues, um, conversations have to happen, evidence has to be gathered, 
The science has to be believed. We have to challenge those who deny that climate change is happening. We have to call out the politicians who are doing nothing about it. We have to think about the long term. When we think about economic security, food security, energy security, we have a, a conversation going on in the UK at the moment about who the next leader of the Conservative Party will be. And by that, we mean the next leader of this country, the next prime minister. I'm not having a, I'm not criticizing the Conservative Party, but what I do notice is absent is any conversation about those things. There's no conversation about climate change, no conversation about energy security at a time when people are going to struggle substantially in this country. There's no conversation about food security. So I think when we think, and part of that I think is just the British culture, we can always get by. That's no longer the case. Um, but we need to think, I think, much more about the way in which we all interrelate around the world, as Shaheen says. Uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's that old cliche of the butterfly's wing, isn't it? It flaps and it has an impact somewhere else. We've got to somehow accommodate these different cultural approaches to tackling climate change, where there may be very localised issues around surviving, for example. If you live in a rainforest and your only way of surviving is to sell illegal wood, you're going to be thinking about that. Is that something I'm, I can do if I've got to feed my children? We need to provide alternative that. Is there a culture that we feel has one element which is damaging for the environment? What do we do about that? You know, we have this problem that the, the, the developed world says to the developing world. Well, as you develop, you have to do it this way. This is one of the problems with the, the COP26 and the COPs before that, where those countries will say, hang on a minute, you're in a position of economic development. How, how are you, why are you telling us we can't get there? It's, uh, so there are all of these kind of really difficult things that need to be balanced. But I think as we're becoming much, much more aware of how these elements do interrelate, where we have to think about the cultural, we have to think about the institutional, we have to think about the economic, the political, and so on, and that people begin to understand that interconnectedness. I think that that's going to be one of the key things. And one of the, if I can make a plug for our course, one of the, the values I think of our course is going to be equipping people with information. I, I'll just say one last thing. I remember 10 years ago having a conversation with somebody who works for a very well-known environmental NGO in this country. And I, was, I asked them, you know, why is it that the public just are not concerned about climate change? And the answer they gave me, which I think was right, was it's so big, it was impossible to fully understand. It's somewhere down the line in terms of years, and it's over there. It's, in, it's not in the West. It's in the countries that Bruce has talked about that Shaheen has mentioned. Well, now it's here. And I think people are beginning to understand now that this is something we all have a role within in terms of tackling. But that, as you say, John Hans, I think there are, there are real, there are gonna be bumps along the road quite clearly in tackling this. Thank you so much, Andrew. And um, this, if, if we have about, um, just over 15 minutes left and I would like that we spent the second part of the discussion to talk about um, some really exciting news and that is the um, 
collaborative partnership between the London Metropolitan University and the United Nations Institute for Training and Research with the launch of the um, Master of Arts in Climate Security, Humanitarian Development and Peacebuilding. And allow me first on behalf of the Worldview community to congratulate um, the London Metropolitan University um, for launching this program because you, as you have uh, stated, there is really so much need um, to, to, from a practitioner perspective, um, to share, um, you know, some of these um, different areas and um, concerns, but not in terms of um, only raising concerns, but also how to work towards sustainable solutions and um, practical um, means of how um, these challenges can be met. So I would like each one of you, please, and if I can start with you, Andrew, um, tell us more about this program. And, you know, if, if I can say, why should anybody that is interested, why should they um, register for this program? Because, well, quite simply because it's the most pressing issue the world faces. And it's as simple as that. You know, I often get asked by students, you know, is nuclear proliferation more worrying than terrorism? Or is it this or is it that? And I will always come back to climate change and, and make the point that this is something that will impact on every single person on this planet. And in terms of this, this degree, why would you want to study it? Because we have always thought that there was a need to create something that was very practitioner focused that would enable people to build up a knowledge base, to share information with other practitioners as well, and to go out there into the community, whether it's local or beyond that, to really make a difference. And that's what we're very, very excited about when, in terms of this degree. In fact, I have to be honest, I've been at London Met for, for 30 years. There have been many things that have excited me during that time, but this is the thing that I'm so pleased that we're doing because it, it really is as I say, the most important issue that the world faces. And, and we're, we're fully geared up for this. It's, uh, and we're so delighted to be working with UNITAR. I can't, you know, <clears throat> occasionally I'll wake up in the morning and pinch myself and thinking, wow, we're working with UNITAR because of the knowledge and the experience that, that is coming with that. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, Bruce, if I can ask you, um, what, what would you add to what... Um, Andrew already shared with us in terms of this programme? Well, I think probably what I would come back to is the emphasis that it's, it's not it's not doom and gloom. It's not just, you know, here's a whole shopping list of problems. It's about solutions. And, it, you know, it is about high level solutions. Of course it is. There are you know, international treaties, conventions, so on at that level. We've absolutely got to, you know, got to talk about. But, you know, to come back to my points, I'd really want to emphasise, you know, the local. It's about empowering communities themselves to find solutions. And, you know, that has so many benefits, so many positives to it. But again, I think the danger can be with, when we talk about environmental politics, people can think it's all about telling people not to do things and, 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 and to limit themselves. But, you know, I think the lessons of peace building is it's the opposite. It's about, you know, what more can we do and, and what can we do better that will, you know, not only contribute to uh, uh, climate security, but will improve, you know, our communities and we'll build bonds between communities and those sorts of things. So I think the emphasis on solutions is very much the angle that I, I think the, you, you know, I think students will find particularly attractive uh, that we'll be emphasizing. 
Thank you so much, Bruce. Shane. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to just go back to the, the, the point of, I made about the transnational nature of um, uh, climate security. Look, all of our disciplines are, are, are Western, uh, whether it's international relations or security studies. The, these disciplines emerged after the end of World War I, effectively, uh, in Europe. Uh, the subsequent establishment of the League of Nations was instigated and encouraged by Western states led by President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, uh, World War II breaks out with Germany's invasion of Poland, two European states. Um, the, the, the war then lasts for around five years, uh, and it's primarily between Western European states, uh, but it had the effect of pulling in the rest of the world, the, 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 a number of uh, Southern states. The, the Cold War then officially starts after World War II and, and the two main states pursuing it um, are the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, again, a very Eurocentric uh, 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 and protracted conflict. Um, but this Euro, European affair had the effect of pulling in much of the rest of the world, as both superpowers uh, begin to encourage their own respective client states to join their causes. So, so this has taught me as an academic that the world, world's events have revolved very much around Europe. Um, but what I've tried to challenge in, in, in my career um, and, and I think this MA in climate security, looking through the module list, reinforces that, is that we need to challenge um, that very narrow discourse by highlighting the, the variety of discourses within security studies, within international relations that have, that have constructed non-Western states and, and people as the others. Um, or at the very least being different to the West. And what climate, what, what the current uh, climate emergencies reinforce is that we are not uh, a, 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 a separate distinct part of the world, but we are connected to the, to the others. Um, and, 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 and so in, in that sense then, we, we need to get away from this preoccupation that we have with ourselves and recognize that if we are to make ourselves secure in the West, in Europe, we need to start worrying about the other parts of the world. And, and, and when, we, when, when I look at the uh, great variety of modules that are being taught on this, uh, on the, on this course, many of which are being provided by, by UNITAR, uh, um, uh, from from uh, 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 the, the the disciplinary modules such as international security studies to to other modules that deal specifically with peace building and so on and so forth, um, this master's degree provides us with a way to navigate the connections between the different parts of the world, and and I think I, I think for that reason alone, uh, a, a degree like this is needed. Professor Andrew Moran, Dr. Shine Malik, Dr. Bruce Philbin, thank you so much, gentlemen, um, because 
what you've all just said is this master program um, will demonstrate um, we are in this together, but it's solution orientated. And at the same time, making sure that we leave no one behind. I thank you so much. And at the same time, allow me once again to um, congratulate the leadership shown by the London Metropolitan University of embracing um, a really innovative um, master program, but also to say, you know, led by three academics that um, what you have shown to us in this discussion, it's not just about um, intellectual debates, but it's also connecting our common humanity and the, um, the strength and the weaknesses that can be turned into opportunities. And that is again, when we, um, you're a perfect illustration of how individuals can contribute to sustainable development goals. And for that, um, on behalf of Worldview, I salute and commend you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Very much.